what we're going to talk about today is cyber insurance. We're going to focus primarily on how to buy cyber insurance for your law practice. But some of you had said uh, after, you know, after we invited you to attend, I got a couple of emails and folks are like, okay, but what if my client asks me, do I need cyber insurance? What do I tell them? So we're going to add that as well. We're going to cover that uh, uh, in addition too. So, um, so feel free to uh, ask us any questions ab about that. So who's here uh, on the panel today? There's, there's myself. I'm a virtual chief information security officer. I'm also the co-host of the Cyber Risk Management Podcast. So if you have any interest in cybersecurity uh, from a management perspective, I would invite you to listen if you don't already. My co-host is Jake Bernstein. So um, Jake, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Kip. And, and to clarify, everyone, Kip is a real human. He is virtual insofar as he uh, provides services to a multitude of, uh, of of different companies, right? So yep. I love that virtual. You're a virtual CISO. He's a, he's a, he's a machine, a robot. Um, I am a practicing attorney. Um, I'm a partner at Canal Gates uh, in the Seattle office. And uh, most of my practice these days focuses on data protection, privacy, and cybersecurity. Great. And uh, Jake's going to uh, really, really cover for us thoroughly the, um, the aspects of, of cyber insurance for your law practice. We can all talk about the topic of, you know, what do you tell a client when they ask you if, you know, if they need uh, cyber insurance. But the real expert here on cyber insurance today is Chris Brumfield, who's our guest. Chris, please introduce yourself. Thanks, Kip and Jake. Well, uh, my name is Chris Brumfield. So I work with Alliant Insurance Services or for them. I'm a professional liability advisor and cyber insurance specialist. And uh, I'm looking forward to helping folks have been doing this for, gosh, insurance 13 years now um, with a little bit of background uh, in the reinsurance world. So I got to work with a really complex and uh, interesting world of reinsurance, which actually is sort of the hidden underpinning of uh, the insurance that you uh, you all will be purchasing. Great. Chris, really appreciate you being here. And, um, and you know, one of the reasons why Jake and I uh, invited Chris to come to join us is because this is a topic that is shifting fast. Um, what's interesting is, is that, as, as Chris observed when we were kind of chatting before we started today, um, insurance dominantly is a very slow-moving industry, very, very slow to change uh, industry. But cyber insurance is actually the opposite right now. It's moving fast and furious and people are scrambling to try to figure out what exactly should they be offering in terms of coverages and so forth and pricing and all that stuff. And I don't want to steal Chris's thunder, but we're really glad you're here, Chris. So I'm just going to uh, turn it over to you. And if you could just please give us a primer on what is cyber insurance and, you know, and, and how do you even begin to buy a policy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important, like you said before, Kip, that this really, while this is applicable for your firms, this is actually really applicable for your client, your clients as well, because we we've heard from our our clients as well as Kip has and Jake has, you know, well, what do I talk with about my clients? And is, is do I have a requirement? Do I have a a duty to bring this up with my clients? And and mm. I would say it's not a bad idea. But so what is cyber insurance? Well, there's you're going to hear cyber breach. Hacking insurance for hacks, uh, data insurance, you're going to hear all sorts of terms, but really cyber insurance is meant to cover you in the event that you have a breach. 
So if you are hacked or you are extorted or you're a victim of social engineering, all of that is meant to be covered by cyber insurance. And so, and that can mean both the benign breach where someone has access to your system and nothing happens, or where, uh, where you are completely locked out and uh, your, your computers and, and servers are turned to paperweights. Mm. And, and it's meant to, indemnification, I won't use a lot of insurance terms, I'll try to keep it pretty tame, but it's meant to indemnify you. And, that, and literally, as the slide says, it makes you whole again. So it brings you back to where you were before you had the, the breach. And there are a few different forms. You might find that some insurers will throw, in, throw this cyber insurance, they'll add it onto an existing policy you already have. And we see that in the form of whether it's a professional liability policy or it's a crime policy. They'll throw the, they'll, they'll add some throw in coverage. And I jokingly say oftentimes that's better than nothing, but it can be throwaway coverage because what they do is they'll sublimit that. And so they're either going to put a real small number on that that isn't, isn't usually adequate if you have a breach or it's going to erode your practice policy. And the problem with that is you have typically law firms are going to have what's called claims made and that's called a wasting policy. And the reason it's called a wasting policy is as soon as the attorneys and the are involved as well as the cyber specialists in there that that all gets goes against that annual aggregate so you're pulling you're effectively taking the protection you have for malpractice and you're depleting that with a cyber claim with a, a probably inadequate sublimit i didn't even know that was a thing i did not pick that up from prior conversations chris that's great i it, 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 you know we've had so many conversations on this but it's it, it yeah, it's a fascinating, a fascinating world. At least I, I get excited about it. So. <laughs> well, I'm glad you do because somebody has to. And uh, why not just, you know, get, give it to somebody who really enjoys it? So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the questions we are frequently asked is what does it actually cover? And it's actually really broad. So it, it covers everything from the moment. I almost joke that you're, it's prepaid assistance, having a prepaid SWAT team, if you have the right insurer, because not every insurer is equal. They're not all created equal. And if you have the right insurer, they have a SWAT team on standby that's going to respond. So you have your cyber attorney, you have your IT specialist, and you have your, your cyber forensic specialist. So if you have a suspected breach, even just you just think there's a breach, you can you effectively have prepaid with your insurance premium to have those folks on a retainer, I would say. So they'll they'll spring into action, identify if you, help you identify with your IT folks uh, if you've had a, a breach, and then they help you patch that breach and they help you figure out how to get to where you were. And what's really important with this is the notification requirements for different states are all different. The, every state has its own notification requirements. You have to meet those requirements if you have a breach or a suspected breach, you have to meet those. So the nice thing about cyber insurance is they help you meet all of those on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, I, uh, I just want to make a comment about what you said, how like you're, you've sort of prepaid for some highly technical services. And um, and I, I think that's really cool because if you need a digital forensics team on, no, on a no notice basis, that's difficult. That's very it difficult. Is. Right, Jake. I mean, you've seen that. I've seen it's hard. That. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's, there's, there's a, there's a potential issue too, though, right? Because we just saw this with a, with a, um, with a, 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 an incident that Jake and I are responding to right now, where the insurance company offered digital forensics, but 
it was kind of like compromised a little bit, right? Jake, do you want to like just give a little thumbnail sketch of, of like what sometimes can be a downside to that approach? Uh, I mean, the, so the, uh, in this particular incident, the insurance company, I fully owned the incident response firm and it, it was, I think it was a, it was a situation where we, we might have had some adversity with the insurance provider. And because of that, the idea of, you know, only being able to use their, their kind of captured uh, forensics firm was, was not well received. Right. Right. So, and not every insurance company operates like that. This one happened to. Um, so anyway, so it just, I, Chris, as you were talking, I, I realized that this is like stuff that's coming up in the real world as Jake and I practice our trade here. So I wanted to, I wanted to put it out there. And, you know, what do you think yep. about that, Chris? I, I, I think you're right on that. That goes back to having the right, having the right insurer and understanding how they handle their claims and having maybe perhaps pre-selection of counsel before you have a breach. So you say, hey, I'd like to use Jake. He understands this world and I would like to have him pre-authorized. And you're not always going to get it. But if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. And, and in this and that is important. Yeah. And I think, uh, Jake, if I remember right, in the incident that I just mentioned to you, um, that's what happened, right? Is, the, is that the insurance, uh, the insured um, ended up going with people who are not on the pre-approved list. And there was a little like a negotiation process to make that happen, right? Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, and I mean, Chris is correct. Uh, in a way, the client's lucky that the insurance provider was even willing to do that because many are not. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, cool. So, um, right. So Chris, are you ready to talk about how to buy an appropriate policy? Yeah, absolutely. And, and something that's, uh, the, so the marketplace, we already talked about finding qualified validated insurers and something that's underpinning this as well, that you probably should be aware of is right now, if, if Kit doesn't get to a Jake Wood, there's a cyber breach epidemic or pandemic happening right now. And it, it really, it's just the proportions are staying there. The last couple of years, there have been an increase of two to 300% in claims. And this is only the reported claims. You know someone, you, you are working or know with someone who has been affected by a breach or their firm has, and they might not have coverage and they are not talking about it. It is absolutely not talked about. And what's, and behind this, you also need to know there's reinsurance so insurers buy reinsurance to, just like you buy insurance to uh, transfer that risk. So in the event they have a big lot, large losses, they get reimbursed. The reinsurers, many have lost their interest or they are pulling back or limiting their, their uh, capacity is what it's called. So that makes the primary insurers who you buy your insurance from, it makes them even more nervous when they go, wait a minute, we can't even get coverage or the coverage is increasing by you know 50 to 100 percent in cost what wow we need to really be concerned with this so mm -hmm. that's underpinning it if the reinsurers are nervous then the their primary insurers get really nervous now now this is kind of like coming into an inside baseball thing now right chris because most people they don't understand what reinsurance is and you know and generally they don't they don't need to they don't need to know or care about it but i think this is a really interesting sort of you know peel back the cover comment that you're making about the fact that like, this is a really, uh, this is really uncertain ground that everyone's standing on right uh, now. And, and like, how far does this kind of go, right? It, does reinsurance get re-reinsurance re and re-re-reinsurance? I mean, I assume it stops somewhere, <laughs> but I, the, the, the practical question, I think, Chris, for you to maybe talk about it a little is, 
you know, do you see a situation where, you know, there's going to be clients and, or even, you know, small law firms who, who can't get cyber insurance? Like, is that a risk right now? It, I would say effect in some ways, effectively there, we are facing that. And that's because the, oh, wow. in, the insurance industry as a whole is slow moving, like Kip said, but in cyber, they've been very quick to identify that they are just getting hammered. And I'm not here to be an apologist for them. They chose that to write those policies. So they've been absolutely brutalized. And what that they've all adopted just about, there are few that will offer now, but you have to have certain requirements like MFA in place. Multi-factor authentication. Uh, yeah, multi-factor authentication. They won't write it. And the few that will, they, they're also requiring that you have it in place within the next year. So that's inside and outside MFA or multi-factor authentication. So they're- what Weird. They're doing, it, oh, go ahead. It, it, if only someone had had said this, you know, three or four years ago. I, I feel like if we go back in the archives of your podcast, this <laughs> probably is going to be addressed just oh. once or twice. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Just a few times. Yeah. Well, th and this is fascinating because this is very reflective of what we see in the cybersecurity space, which is it, it's an arms race, right? And 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 so like. Remember, I, I'm sure everybody on this, uh, I, I'm sure I know everybody on this panel and probably many, many attendees remember a time when you could just walk up to a computer, touch the, the space bar, it would wake up and you could use it like no password required. Mm -hmm. Then we needed passwords, but we could put, you know, ABC123. And then, oh, no, that's not good enough now either. We need to also use our username. And, and, and just over time, I think just got more and more locked down. Well, that's because the cyber attackers got better and better and better at, at stealing our stuff. And so now here comes the insurance companies and they're just, they're going to figure out what really works, which I love that. And they're going to tell us. And I think that's fantastic because that's what we really need to know. Um, just like firewalls in, in row, in row apartment buildings, just like, um, like airbags and daytime run lights on passenger cars, right? Like our sprinklers, cars, sprinklers, be, yeah. you know, so our buildings and our cars are safer today than they were 40 years ago because insurance drove standards to decrease the, the, the risk of a claim. Would no you say that's right, Chris? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and there, and there's a long, I, that could be a whole podcast, a whole session on how the improvements in auto safety have been driven by the insurance industry and fire safety. And I, I mean, there's a myriad of ways it's underpinned, underpinned and improved the world we live in. Yeah. And I think that's happening here with cyber. I, I absolutely believe that the same thing is going to happen to the best of their ability. I just saw a news, a news story the other day that said um, that in the lack in the leadership vacuum on the national level with respect to, you know, the, the, the pres office of the presidency, Congress, and so forth, insurance companies are now having to take a leading role on the national stage mm -hmm. because nobody else will do it and they desperately need it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's in the, in the cyber space, it's really, it's really very similar to, you know, we use the term cyber hygiene. It's very similar to life insurance, right? You can buy life insurance, but they're going to come and they, they check your blood pressure, your cholesterol, mm -hmm. they check your medical history. And, you know, if you're a smoker and you report, you know, five drinks a day and never exercising, you know, if they decide to cover you at all, it's going to cost you a lot more. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as, as was alluded to, Kip and I have been, have been wondering for years now, uh, even when we first met Chris and his, and his partner, uh, Jay Soroka, 
um, when is insurance, when is cyber insurance going to wake up and start doing this? And apparently the answer is uh, not that long from when we asked the question, at least in the, in the scheme of things. Yeah, we'd feel it's maybe a few years behind uh, and it was already, you know, it was already felt like at times the pricing was throwing a dart at a dartboard, but they've they've changed and that's part of the insurance requirements or insurer requirements. The underwriters are using a lot more scrutiny. They've adopted much more high tech uh, than previously. There are uh, methods where they do passive scans before they'll insure you and they identify Mm. potential weak points. And, and part of that, you know, and it, we were talking about coverage and avail- availability. Um, and this is partly in bundling. Uh, I'll, I, I don't want to get too far off the agenda. I know uh, a few folks probably want to know about bundling. You can bundle with certain insurers and that works really well. And others, probably not the best, the, the best route. So you'd want to ask, go ahead and talk with your broker. And I'm always happy to help um, if you have questions, but but they're effectively, they're either underwriting out bad risks. So they're saying we have to, we can't offer this or they're limiting coverages. And, and so we're seeing that with limiting social, uh, social engineering. You can't, if you have a million dollar policy or $5 million policy, whatever it is, there is going to be a supplement for social engineering. And that maybe that's a hundred thousand or 200,000, but they're, they've tamped that down. And what that tells me when the insurance industry is requiring multi-factor authentication uh, as a prerequisite to get a policy, and they're also limiting in certain segments like social engineering, that's where they're getting hit and they're getting hit hard. So they're responding yeah. in that way by limiting the coverage. Um, and there are some insurers that have, they've, they've also looked, sought to differentiate themselves by having uh, betterment. So they'll help you upgrade your system if it's uh, you know sorely in need of that so that they can help you block breaches um, or they'll cover uh, like one insurer I can think of, I won't say their name, but they uh, don't have a deductible for computer forensics or uh, legal experts. So if you have a claim, and that's where most of your costs are going to pull up in for first-party coverage for, for your firm. Uh, so that's that's a pretty important uh, distinction you're going to want to take a notice of. And ex- oh, one other, exclusions. We One exclusion from one policy, they defined... Devices that are covered, so what your cyber insurance will cover, and everyone's working from home, or at least partially at this these, this point, it, as any device that is not, it's not considered a covered device if it's not owned or leased by the firm. So effectively, <laughs> they, yeah, Kips, Kips gets it. Effectively, they, are, they were excluding any personal devices. So, and I would make the case if I'm, if I'm that well, gosh, you had a breach, but it came actually came through one of your employees' home router. It, it, that, it literally had to get to them through that router. So because of that, it's not a covered loss. Well, not only that, Chris, but this whole BYOD, right? Bring your own device. <laughs> None of that's corporate-owned. So that's that, brutal. So there could be large swaths of, of incidents that won't get covered because people have a BYOD. That might actually fuel a shift back to corporate-owned devices. Yeah. And, and, and there's creative ways to get around, but you have to know what the policies say. It's yeah. really important to actually read them. And, and other exclusions that you can, uh, you can find are the, uh, the CCPA, which I know you've talked about before, California Consumer Protection Act. There are statutory damages there where you're going to end up being on the hook if a California resident, I believe it, Jake, you might know the exact amount. It's either $700, $750. Um, it's yeah. the private right of action, right? Yeah, it's the $750 statutory damages provision of the California Consumer Privacy Act. And and not all insurers cover that. 
So some insurers will cover the, the, the CCPA, some won't. And so what happens is you have a potentially very expensive loop or, or missing por portion of coverage if your insurer isn't gonna cover that because you're on the hook for that. And that's not proving they, were, they had any damages. That's just saying, I live in California and I was a member of the breach. Mm. Yeah. You can have a real big opening there, especially if you have a number of clients that are California residents or consider themselves to be. So I want to move. I want to move along to uh, uh, to a kind of a, a, a an aspect, an angle of this that I want to make sure people understand, which is which is making sure that you have the right coverages, and then we're gonna then we're gonna hand it off to Jake, and Jake's gonna talk about the specific legal aspects, right? The specific uh, obligations that attorneys have, and why cyber liability insurance may be a, a good thing to to purchase for their practice, but. Um, uh, this this is this is a, a really old uh, a case here that I'm bringing up um, in and 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 this has to do obviously with um, with a restaurant and not a law firm but I just think it's a really good way to illustrate this point that you you need to make sure that you have the right coverages you just absolutely have to in 2014 PF Chang's had a credit card data breach and one of the consequences of that is that Bank of America charged them 1.9 million dollars to cover the cost of reissuing all the credit cards that had been breached. So, so PF Chang's uh, filed a, that as a claim. So Chubb was their carrier. They had paid $135,000 premium for their cyber policy and Chubb denied the claim. And so Chang's took them to court and they lost. And so the upshot, and Chris, this is where I'm going to hand it off to you, is that it seems that they didn't have the right coverages in place, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. think they had first party coverages, but they didn't have third party coverages. Uh, yeah, and that, and that gets into knowing what you're buying and having an, an, edu an educational approach. You need to understand what you're purchasing and why. And you need to have, frankly, you need to have a broker that understands or is able to explain why, because this... I, I mean, I would I would not want to be a part of that claim or a claim similar to that because I think the first step that PF Chang's or or a client would take would be, well, why didn't you tell me about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And that's a that's a big lesson, right? That's a huge tuition payment right there, one point nine million dollars <laughs> to get to learn that lesson. But uh, but anyway, so folks, I mean, that's that's uh, just another thing that we want to make sure you, that you understand is that you have to know what your coverages are, and you need to know what your exclusions are too, because as a risk manager for your firm, you've got to manage to your exclusions, right? You've got to know where you don't have coverage, so you can add additional protection, like that. As as your as your chief information security officer for this hour that we're together that is what that's how i uh, think about that so any last words chris before we uh turn it over to jake i know i the well, last words would be and i don't care who you talk to or from but if you don't have cyber insurance already you're you're sort of flying uh uncovered out there so just consider or think about because it, it's relatively uh the amount of risk you get to transfer over is pretty pretty big for what you actually pay even even though coverages are going down and costs are going up, you still think it's worth it? I, I still think it's worth it. I, I wouldn't be comfortable if I was operating a business without it. And you and as a broker, you could always choose not to offer it if you didn't think it was worth it, right? Oh yeah. I, and there's and there's some clients where they're I just was in a, a discussion yesterday with a, a very small firm. Uh, they're just getting their feet off the ground and and uh, and, and they it wasn't it didn't make sense for them at that point. Mm -hmm. because they would easily recreate anything they had. But if mm -hmm. you're 
in a situation where downtime, you have to figure out how much is this downtime going to cost if we're down because of a breach. Because some, and all it takes is someone clicking on the wrong link. And we had a we have a firm that actually that actually happened. They clicked on the wrong link, and I mean, bam, eleven thousand dollars in in uh, losses right away. Yeah, it's breathtakingly easy to fall into something like this. It shouldn't be, but it is. So on that note, though, let's turn it over to Jake because he wants to talk about rules of professional conduct. And, uh, and you know, and this is, this is the very, very uh, lawyerly part of the conversation now that we've sort of introduced cyber liability insurance, kind of what it is and what's going on. So, Jake, you just uh, let me know when you want to see a next slide, and I'll go ahead and drive slides for you. Great. We'll go ahead and, and advance by one. And while you're doing that, I'll just answer this question in the chat. Is this something that even small businesses need? Um, I, I would say yes, because I think there's affordable policies because you're, I mean, look, if you're, if you're really small, you're, you're, the exposure to the insurance company is, is significantly lower. Um, so I, I think, uh, I think everyone needs it. Yes. I think even a, I think a, I think a one, I think a solo lawyer, lawyer office needs to pay attention to this. Uh, at least so, consider it. At least consider it, and and let's dig into why. But go ahead, Chris. Before you, I was just going to uh, say, if, you, if you're looking at a, a non a non or a benign breach, those can those can be anywhere from seven thousand to ten thousand dollars, depending on depending on how many. I mean, you have the forensic specialists are are billing at attorney rates in some cases. So, yeah, yeah. If you can afford just you know just to throw seven or ten thousand dollars out for a claim, you know, and you have one or two of those a year, which we had a client have small. Then you know that's fine, but or maybe you spend three thousand on an insurance policy. Yeah, and 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 what we're going to talk about here is the um, uh, you know the the ABA twenty twelve technology amendments, and you know the the reality is is that even though these were originally proposed, uh, gosh, what is that? Almost uh, almost well, years. ten years ago. Yeah, yeah nine years um, is uh, is that I want to say at last count thirty nine or forty of the 50 states and, and territories have adopted these amendments in, in one form or another. Um, I, I would encourage, you know, the individual lawyers who are, um, you know, outside of, I, so Washington state did in 2016. I can just say that right up front. Um, everyone else, uh, if you're not, if you're not a Washington state lawyer, I would go check the status of this. Um, there's sites that track it, but basically what the ABA did was said, okay, we're going to we're going to provide these amendments you know some of them are just comments so model rule 1.1 which we'll get to in a moment is is um the straightforward competency rule um and then uh, then they added actual model rule 1.6c which we'll talk about more and then they have got some formal opinions so go ahead and, and advance uh slide deck so this is uh this is comment 8 and what it did was it it really just added that one clause starting with including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology. So small change, big impact, uh, lawyers need to be, lawyers need to know what their technology does for them. And if we have any, uh, if we have any older lawyers on the call, uh, you know, you might remember that there was debate about whether or not lawyers could use email. And it took time before the, uh, before the bar associations decided that yes, it, it was it was ethical to use email. Um, there were questions about the privacy. There were questions about the attorney-client privilege. Don't make fun of us, Kip. It just um, seems so quaint. I'm sorry. <laughs> it does, right? It it does. It it certainly does now. 
yeah now, um, but when now it first it but when it when it first existed it, it was not so much and um and there is actually a there's there's a whole aba formal opinion specifically about that from the the early 90s or maybe it was even mid 90s um but go ahead and 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 move forward but sure. and so what what the, what it says is that you know now competency includes the understanding of the uh, of of the technology that you use to deliver legal services, and uh, you know that that has really changed um, immensely. And fortunately, fortunately, the competency requirement can be satisfied either by uh, your own individual study or through the association with qualified lawyer or non-lawyer assistance. So you can have an IT department, you can hire a virtual CISO. Uh, that is all. That's all acceptable uh, in terms of being being competent. Go ahead, please. Uh, 1.6 C on the other hand is a much bigger deal. And the, uh, the text of the model version is a lawyer shall make reasonable efforts to prevent the inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure of, or unauthorized access to information relating to the representation of a client. So this is obviously 1.6 is the confidentiality uh, rule. And this adds this whole idea of uh, what ultimately becomes reasonable cybersecurity. And what we see is that comment 18 says that a lawyer has to act competently to safeguard information and they, uh, you have to supervise folks, right? You have to, you have to, it's not just a lawyer, but it's also you know, anyone who's subject to the lawyer supervision and then go ahead and advance, please. There you go. And then uh, here's this other really, really important one, which is which what it boils down to is, and I'll let people read it, uh, but what it, what it really says is, if you've taken reasonable efforts to prevent the access or disclosure, inadvertent or unauthorized, then it's not a violation of paragraph C. In other words, it is, it is only a violation if you have not taken reasonable efforts to prevent the, the breach of information. So go ahead. So uh, for the first of the two formal opinions I want to talk about is uh, 477, May 11th, 2017. Now, the ABA rules state that, I can, that we cannot provide copies. However, you can Google it and download it. So I uh, highly recommend that you do that. And this one, this 477 really, uh, one, it, it actually kind of cites back to the, uh, the, the, email, the email opinion. And uh, it really focuses on 1.6 C and the, and the reasonable efforts. Um, and of course, because this is because lawyers wrote this, uh, it is, it is a factor-based examination. It's not susceptible to hard and fast rules. And you see immediately that the ABA rejected requirements such as, you know, firewalls, specific types of passwords. Um, and instead went with a, Yes, Chris, it means it's a moving, it's a constantly moving target, which is important, right? Because as Kip mentioned earlier, the, the, the innovation from the attacker side is nonstop. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what you see here is that what's crucial is the process that you follow, the process to assess risks, to identify and implement appropriate security measures that respond to those risks, you have to verify that they're implemented and then ensure that they are continually updated. And absolutely having cybersecurity insurance 
um, is a component of, of this risk analysis and, and the, the types of measures. So uh, advance, please. Mm -hmm. There you go. Uh, this formal opinion is full of guidance. Uh, it, it, one of the things it says is, hey, determine how electronic communications regarding client matters ought to be protected. You know, it's always a good idea. Label, label when it's confidential. Have some kind of um, you know, information classification policy. Make sure that you've trained not only the lawyers, but the non-lawyer assistants. And this is a big one. Uh, due diligence on vendors providing communication technology. Uh, particularly if you're not using a super well-known one, uh, it, it's really, really important that you know you can be responsible for hiring a, a company to help you that itself is not secured well. So, Jake, can I ask a question real quick about minimum viable? Because I talk to my customers all the time about you know don't try to write you know huge thick tomes of you know how to do stuff right just just make it the least that you can make it and still get the job done right take a minimum viable viable approach does that does that work here in terms of 477 um i think it does because i think you're going to be iterating on that right now if you if you take a minimum viable approach and then you stop i think uh i think you might have trouble mm -hmm. but i think if you I think I think I think the opposite is actually true. I think you I think if you start with a minimum viable approach, you can at least say you've done something. Like imagine a situation where someone has someone has let the let perfection be the enemy of good, mm -hmm. and they're just like we don't have anything in place until we get it perfect, and then something happens to them. Uh, that's not the greatest position to be in, right? I don't I don't know that that's particularly reasonable to expect. So. Okay. A lot of people are put off because they think that, you know, that, that, um, that these policies have to be, like you said, perfect, or they have to have thought, you know, in advance about everything. And, and if you can't do that, then, you know, you, you might as well not do anything at all. And, and I just wanted to be clear that even for the attorney yeah. trying to follow, you know, uh, uh, these rules of professional conduct, like don't let that stop you. Well, and, and the, you know, the, the, the irony of the situation is that all of this trouble is caused by, by digital technology, you know, a very binary reality, but, but cybersecurity and compliance are anything but binary, right? They're as analog as you can get They're They're a spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, you are, one is, one is not simply compliant or not compliant. There is, or, or secure or not secure. It's, it's a constant evolving situation. Uh, okay, um, so the next one is is the kind of the slightly newer one, October seventeenth, twenty eighteen, four eighty three. This one is specifically about what you have to do uh, after experiencing a data breach. And I'm going to go relatively quickly here um, to leave time for questions. But basically, this this particular publication talks about well, what is a data breach? How do you know if you've been breached? What do you have to do after? a breach is discovered, et cetera, et cetera. So let's go ahead and, and dive in. So this is really fascinating. A data breach for purposes of formal opinion 483 is a data event where material client confidential information is either misappropriated, destroyed, or otherwise compromised, or where a lawyer's ability to perform the legal services for which the lawyer is hired is significantly impaired by the episode. And that last one is fascinating and will, and it's, it'll show up a few times and we'll talk about it. So a few hypotheticals, cause you know, it wouldn't be a CLE without a hypothetical. Um, yeah. If there's no actual compromise of, of material client 
confidential information or MCCI, then you know it's not a data breach. Um, if there's exfiltration or theft of MCCI, then clearly it is a data breach. Now, interestingly enough, ransomware that didn't access any um, material client confidential information, but blocked the ability to use the information still would, would be considered a breach. And then this is the most fascinating. Let's say that there's no MCCI involved at all. The only thing that happened is that your IT infrastructure has been hosed. Um, that is still considered a breach if you can't perform legal work because particularly in court, you know, I, I, I would actually wonder if it has happened where someone stands up in a hearing and says, your honor uh, was not able to submit the brief or prepare for this hearing because ransomware destroyed my computer. I, I don't know. I honestly have no idea how that would go over. I think some judges uh, might be understanding. I think others might be not so much. Um, so I think it's an, it's an interesting question. Chris, I think it's worthwhile to point out that all four of those items would be covered by cyber insurance. Ah, well done. Yep, that's very good. Uh, okay, let's go to the next one. So how do you know you've been breached? Well, I have news for you. You have to pay attention. Uh, the, the, there was a brief discussion in the, uh, the ABA formal opinion about, well, you know, do, do, these ever get, do these responsibilities ever get triggered if we don't check and if we don't know? And they decided, I think, pretty quickly that, you know, um, ignorance is not bliss. Uh, you cannot stick your head in the sand. Uh, you can't be the ostrich. So you, you have to employ reasonable efforts to monitor your technology and office resources connected to the internet. Um, so, you know, really that I think is, and this is can fairly be hard straightforward. To do, right, Jake? But I mean, it's straightforward to understand and to say, but actually it's, it, it can be very difficult to do because most malicious codes these days install silently. Right. Well, it, it is hard. And, and in fact, you know, detect is one of the three primary functions of the NIST cybersecurity framework. And so it is not at all a, um, a, a trivial component. Like this is a major detection is a major, major deal. Yeah. Um, it's hard to, it can be and, very hard to do. And it, and it can be very hard, but, but what the ABA says is that's too bad lawyers. You have to do it. Mm. So, and this is, re this is, I mean, really this is, this is the only reasonable conclusion. Um, so, you know, other other implications are that law firms, you, you, you do have to know whether your employees are following the firm cybersecurity policies and procedures. And then there are other regulatory and legal provisions, right? You know, CCPA might still apply to you. Um, for employees, again, uh, this, this harkens back to model rule 5.1 and 5.3. You have a duty to supervise and train. Um, it applies to associates, other lawyers, non-attorney staff, and even third-party vendors. So, it's, it, it's, it extends. Um, are hackers really smart? They certainly can be. And yes, sometimes they have nation state resources. This is the, the, the point of this question was basically, look, is it fair to say that, you know, that I have to prevent attacks if the Chinese military or, or Russian mafia wants to come after me for whatever reason. And what the ABA said was, okay, you know, the legal standard, at the, in the broader, you know, broader marketplace uh, is, is not perfection because perfection is impossible. Instead, what they said is that ethical violations will occur primarily through inaction, right? So the requirement is for reasonable efforts to avoid data loss, detect cyber intrusion. It's not for perfect. It's not, it's not for 
you know, thou shalt not get hacked or breached. So what, what they really focus on is it's the lack of reasonable effort mm. plus a breach that will lead to an ethical violation. So advance. Okay. So you've been breached. Now what? So the, the, really the first thing you got to do is stop the bleeding, right? Patch the hole. Um, you know, what that means is ensure that ensure that one, you know where all the holes are uh, and that you, and that information isn't leaking out of, of your, uh, your, your digital corpus. Um, um, that may make no sense, but I went with it. <laughs> so uh, how do you do that? Well, be prepared. Um, you have an ethical duty to act reasonably and promptly to stop the breach and mitigate damage resulting from the breach. How do you do that? Well, the, the best way is to proactively develop an incident response plan and practice it. Again, this is a huge component of where cyber insurance can help you. Uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, you know, the an incident response plan is going to involve resources. It's going to involve forensics, counsel, et cetera. All of that will be covered. Um, and not only is it covered monetarily, but it's right there. It's like right there at the fingertips. You don't have to go and find it. You don't have to go and figure out who to call. It's all in your policy. Super yeah. helpful. I, I love the concept of a data breach coach, which I don't think we've mentioned so far in the session. No, so Chris, would you just give like a very quick thumbnail sketch of what a data breach coach is when you have a policy? They are your point person. And usually depending on the insurer, you're gonna hear within, from them within 30 to 60 minutes. And literally that quickly, and they walk you through the entire process. You mm-hmm. don't have to know how, who to contact. You don't have to have your Rolodex. You call the insurer. They, they, the breach coach walks you through and connects you with everyone you need to be connected with. Um, real quick, I noticed that the uh, we got a question. I think it was sent just to me, so I'll read it. Um, we work 100% on site. Does the underwriter look at less exposure for example, because you're a city that does not work remotely and blocks all overseas connections, or is that, you know, is that, is that entity going to get lumped into, lumped into the rest of the market with other, you know, remote work situations? And Chris, I, please answer, but my guess is that, is that no, one of the things we're seeing is that insurance companies are taking a, okay, let's actually look and analyze the risk mm-hmm. posed by every individual customer. Yeah. Yeah. The underwriters are scrutinizing that more. And that would be something we would actually highlight to the insurer as well, to the underwriter. And, uh, and they do passive scans as well. So they're much more involved. And it's not just, here's your policy. Thanks for completing a one-page application. It's like they some used of to the be. applications are five. To, yeah, it used to be that way. Now yeah. some of them are five to seven with lots of follow-up questions. And you have to anticipate some of those. So, But that's a good point. And you can point that out to your cyber insurer. Yeah. Yeah. Cyber insurance questionnaires probably always should have looked more like the due diligence work that I do with M- on M and A. Uh, the reality is until they recently, didn't know what to they, ask. <laughs> they, they didn't know what to ask, but they, they, they just did not right? a one yeah, page they form. Just didn't know. No, they didn't. Yeah. Okay. Now so sp- specific information about what your incident response process should look like. Um, you know, this is straight out of the ABA opinion. You can also find information on the, at the NIST cybersecurity framework. That's uh, NIST.gov. Um, and, uh, basically the incident response process, these are the things you've got to do. I want to, I want to kind of move it along. So I'm not going to read them all, but, uh, this is the goal. Who do you call? So again, uh, we've just talked about this. You do have to, you have the added problem as a lawyer of respecting duties of confidentiality, but you can call your own lawyer, definitely the insurance company. 
generally, I recommend law enforcement. You do have to do some additional analysis about whether the client would object, if it would harm the client, would it benefit the client. Um, and then, yes, don't forget your actual client. Next slide. And, and hold on, Jake. I'm, I know we're time pressed, but... But, you know, there's a lot of choices when you call law enforcement. Are we calling the beat cop down the street? Are we calling the city, PD? Who are we calling? So um, if nothing else, you, you do, you, you can call the, the city police department. Ultimately, though, it's the FBI and Secret Service. Yeah, and, and you can find them on the internet pretty easily. There's a cybercrime task force in every major metropolitan area. So think FBI first. Yeah, FBI first. Uh, must you call your client? So this is an interesting question, right? Um, look, we wouldn't want, no, no one would want to call their clients and admit that, you know, we got breached. Uh, it would be a horrible thing to do. Um, generally speaking though, the ethical duty is to, yeah, you're going to have to keep your client informed. Um, you know, if, if MCCI was actually or reasonably suspected of being accessed, disclosed or lost, yes, you do. Former clients, it's more, it's, it's less clear, um, I recommend that you agree on a records return or destruction policy. So you simply don't have the, uh, that information to be breached. And then if you don't have any MCCI, you don't have to worry about notifying former clients. So go ahead and next slide. Yep. Uh, this is interesting. What do you have to tell the client, right? So I'm sure at, at this point I would be shocked if there was anyone, uh, you know, any adult living in the U.S. right now who has not received at least one breach notification email or letter from someone, uh, most of the time they don't say much. What the ABA considered is, you know, are those really good enough for lawyers? And I think that they've come down on the side of no. Um, you really need to be a little bit more specific. You need to provide enough information so the client can decide what to do next. Um, you have to tell them the extent of the access or disclosure. And if you don't know that what reasonable steps were taken uh, and weren't successful, or if they're still in progress, you know, what you're going to do next. Um, and then to keep that going. So it, it's, it's more than just kind of the, uh, the statutory, you know, data breach notification laws puts on, on the average business. Lawyers have to go farther. So go ahead and next slide. Sure. And that brings us, that brings us to the end, actually. So, uh, Jake, before we transition into Q&A, is there any, any last thoughts? I, I, I just cannot emphasize enough the need to take this kind of stuff super seriously. Um, I don't know of any, uh, I don't know of any bar associations taking ethical action against a law firm or a lawyer yet. However, there have been class action lawsuits filed against law firms, um, for basically failing to to adequately protect client information. So the I would I would I would bet though that as this as this has kind of percolated in the industry that there will be moments there will be there will be disciplinary proceedings um, regarding this. Okay. So and, okay, and I I also add that if you haven't seen seen it yet, either yourself, your firms, or your clients, you're going to start being required actually to cover cyber insurance or to carry it. Because we have seen that happening where we've had requests for folks haven't had it and say probably 80 to 90% of our clients have cyber at this point. Uh, that was probably 50% a few years ago. So uh, mm -hmm. but it's, it is being required because we've had clients come to us and say, we need, we need cyber insurance tomorrow because we have, we have a client that, need, that is requiring it. 
Yeah. So that's what, in, in my line of work, I would call that supply chain pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can't do a deal unless I have it. And so, you know, I, I'm just, this is the, it's the cost of, of, of getting this deal closed. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, Jake, when, um, when, when a law firm, uh, uh, is advising a non-law firm. I, I remember that there's um, doesn't the doesn't the inside counsel issue some kind of like requirements to the outside counsel? Yeah. What is o that? OGC OGCs outside um, or OCGs outside counsel guidelines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's it, it, what it is. Is it's basically the equivalent of of your kind of typical security or policy or something mm -hmm. uh, or set of requirements that that non-lawyers. Um, you know, the business is passed between themselves all the time. Uh, it's what the law, it's what the law firm is expected to do in order to actually provide services. So it's okay. particularly common with regulated industries, you know, nobody, you can't represent a bank or, or anything like that without kind of dealing with the, uh, um, OCGs. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks. I, I thought, I thought there was, uh, a legal equivalent of that. So, all right. So we've reached the end of the prepared material, the things we absolutely wanted to share with you so that you could be in, well informed on this topic. And if anybody has questions, we'd love to take them now. So let me pass it back to Melinda to coordinate questions. Thank you, Kip. Um, so it looks like we did a fabulous job at answering a lot of the questions throughout the presentation. Um, but if anyone has any other questions, feel free to put them in the chat or in the um, open Q&A, uh, whichever is easiest for you. And we'd love to answer them. And I'll give you guys a few minutes to get them in. And if you don't have a question, maybe you've just got a comment like, you know, like I'm overwhelmed or, <laughs> <laughs> or you've got to be kidding me or who are these jerks that are making our lives so miserable anyway? Um, you know, criminals. anything like that. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. It really is. It's criminals. Uh, and so I'll just I'll just share this statistic. Uh, this year, the uh, the global loss for cybercrime and cyber failures is approximately six trillion dollars. And if you aggregate all that up the way I just did and put it uh, compared to other national economies, it's actually the third largest economy on, on planet Earth behind the U.S. and China. And it's expected by 2025, that number will increase to $10 trillion. And in 2015, I think it was less than a trillion. To just give you an idea of how fast this has accelerated and the hockey stick shaped curve that it's become. And there's really no yeah. end in sight. <laughs> it just, no. There's no end in sight. The net, the, our governments have no idea really what to do about this. They're, they're frantically trying to figure it out but they haven't. And there's just, there's just nothing on the horizon that's going to suggest that we're going to see this, uh, you know, fall off or even level off. It's other, other, th other than um, starting to, I, I, look, part of the reason is that no one was prepared, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have a long way to go. This is another situation where, you know, we really are looking for cyber herd immunity, but that requires everybody to play a part and, and we're not there yet. Yeah, that's that that's true. I mean, this is not unlike what we're wrestling with as a as a nation yeah. with um and and, uh, and I say that because we don't want people to think it's hopeless, right? I think that's that's a dangerous it's a dangerous impression to give is that oh, we can't stop it. You, you know, there's individually there's not much we can do about the overall trends, but 
you know, the more that people individually take action, like these practices will work. They will reduce risk, you know, activating MFA using the uh, concepts like the essential eight from Mm -hmm. the uh, Australian signals directorate. um, Really there are, there are things that work. So, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that Um, because we just got a great question on that point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and the the question is that, you know, are you facing a, a CIO that it was trying to create a loss prevention strategy instead of using cyber insurance. And I'd say the first part of that is great. So the, the fact that there's a loss prevention strategy being used, I, critical. I'd say that's the, that is the first step. But what needs to be understood is that cyber insurance doesn't mean that the, the CIO is going to be put under the microscope and told they're doing a bad job. It's meant to, to wor- work alongside with and to make the CIO look even better because they're looking at the risk from a holistic standpoint. It's not meant to take over their job or tell them doing something wrong. It's really meant to partner with them and to help them in that because they see this day in and day out. So unless your CIO specializes in cyber breaches and that's all that he sees or she sees every day, then they are not going to be able to handle it or understand it the way that either, you know, Jake, you deal with this all the time, or the uh, or the cyber insurers that's all they do for a living quite literally they get and yeah refusal to use yeah. mfa that's going to be hard there are some insurers you can place with um but it's 98 the insurance industry as a whole has said well gosh 98 percent of breaches could be avoided with mfa well and, and i mean i would say that I, I would say that if if that if that city official was my with my client, I would, I would tell him or her that refusal to use MSA is essentially per se unreasonable. And that, you know, if he, if, if that person was a, you know, an officer or director of a corporation and owed fiduciary duties to the corporation, he or she would be in breach of those duties by taking that attitude. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a, it's a tremendous liability that would be, that would create instantaneous problems. Um, mm. So that I think, uh, and, and no, I don't see a trend of organizations going rogue on cyber insurance. I, I think, I think cyber insurance is harder to get, but you know, these days really the act of getting it and doing what's required to get it, it is protective. Like that's, they're not, you know, the insurance companies aren't coming up with these things Um well, I guess that's the beauty of an, of the insurance model, right? Is that their interest, which is to not pay out claims, actually does meet with the. It's the same interest that the insureds have to not be injured, right? Like right. everything is like that's it goes whether it's fire or automobile safety, right? Like we don't want to get seriously injured in a car accident. We don't want our houses or buildings to burn down. Um, you know, what, what the insurance industry is doing to, uh, re, you know, what they require to make those things less likely is good for both parties. And the same is true of the cyber insurance industry. Now from it just op- took them a little longer to get there. Yeah. Now, from an operational perspective, I, I want to also say that a loss prevention strategy, fantastic. Applause, right? If I had a button that would make applause happen on this webcast, I would do that. Um, but, but to not use, but to say you have a loss prevention strategy, but not use MFA. That's like saying we're going to have lifeguards, but we're not going to give them uh, the safety gear that they need to pull swimmers out of the water. I mean, I just like, it, it just doesn't compute for me. These things go together. We know they go together. So, um, you know, why would you tie one, one wrist to one ankle? I don't get it. <laughs> 
Everyone, I have to run, but uh, maybe uh, Chris and Kip can will will stick on for a few more questions. But uh, please feel free to reach out if you've got additional questions. Thanks, we'll try Jake. to limp along without you, Jake. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> bye. Thanks. So, yeah. um, what, Chris? What do you what do you think about uh, about you know uh, what I said or or you know anything else about uh, people you know organizations going rogue on cyber insurance? I I think. I would not want to have to stand in front of a board and explain why I didn't think it was worth, and oftentimes these policies, and I, I'm not quick to spend anyone's money. And I, at one point, had, had my own, uh, my own uh, consulting contracting business. So I'm very quick to look at that, everything with a, a critical lens, but I don't want to stand in front of a board and explain why I thought I could save 0.001% of the, of the annual revenue of the firm or, or even 1% of the firm's uh, income and then suffer a breach that then is, is multiple percentages of the firm's annual revenue. And, and that's not including the, all the additional headache that happens because they, yeah. these are not, you, yeah, you'll get made whole and they'll bring you back to where you were. They'll pay the extra expenses. They'll pay for, for your replacement of software, hardware, um, and or repairing or recreating work you've done. But that doesn't all that doesn't account for all the time that is invested in that. So you are having to effectively shift your focus off your clients and customers and you're having to focus internally and not nothing revenue generating. Yeah. And so that that ends up having a large cost. And you can say, yeah, some of it's going to be covered because of lo loss of income, which is covered by cyber policies. But if you're having to shift internal staff off of other matters, it's going to be really hard to document that. I want to make a comment about the fact that this is a city is another thing that I think is important is cities uh, have a different dynamic, right? It's not so mm -hmm. much about revenue generation. It's about tax collection yeah. and, uh, and they have a reputation, right? But their reputation, when their reputation gets trashed because citizens uh, personal information was compromised because they had a data breach. I mean, citizens can't just decide, well, I'm not going to, you know, buy, you know, water and police services from the city anymore. It's a little different. The dynamic is a little different mm -hmm. and cities are also used to kind of self-insuring right very large cities kind of self-insure to a, to a, a to a lot of risks that they're facing either because they can't get any insurance for it and it's the only way that they can deal with that risk besides you know putting some controls in place so i, I acknowledge that the dynamics are a little are a little bit different there but let's say this how you know if how would the mayor feel if they were going to lose the next election because of a cyber breach that caused tremendous reputational damage to their administration, because a lot of citizens had their uh, sensitive information leaked onto the internet. And I think perhaps that might be a good business case to present to the CIO. Anyway, that's a thought. And there, and there is coverage on the, these policies have coverage for PR. So if, if you find yourself squarely in the crosshairs of the media, or the local media usually because they'll they will pick that up very quickly then not in addition to the this uh the cio and or the mayor or anyone else brought in they will actually launch a pr campaign to to help explain what happened and how it's being addressed and that even makes the cio look smarter because hey not only did i take these steps to prevent this from happening but not i also was prepared in the event that it didn't go and it only cost X percent to do so. So I think we're out of time. I know folks need to get on to other things. We really appreciate the fact that you were here today. Please feel free to reach out to us uh, afterwards if you have some additional 
uh, questions or thoughts, if you'd like some clarifications, we'd be we'd be pleased to hear from you. So uh, contact information is here on the slides. You can uh, hit reply on the the emails that we've sent out, letting you know, you know, hey, don't miss the session. And um, yeah, we're here to help. So thanks for being here. Melinda, what else do we need to say or do in order to to wrap up? Yes, so we will um, send a recording out shortly after um, today or uh, tomorrow. I'm just sharing the same recording with you if you'd like to see it again. Um, and for all of the reporting, I saw that question come in. If you, you can either report it yourself or if you would like it, us to do it, we just need your, um, your number and your first and last name, your WSBA number and your first and last name, and I will be able to report it for you. Yeah. And oh, and one more thing, we're going to we, we do these free CLEs uh, once a quarter and the next one is going to be December 15th at noon. Is that right, Melinda? Yeah, that's correct. Great. So we'll we'll let you folks know what that's going to look like content wise. We'll give you a heads up. We hope you will come back. And um, I think that's a wrap, right? Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. All right, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.